to the DC Debrief for Friday, September 22nd, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, chaos within the GOP House Caucus could have America steaming towards a government shutdown. President Biden speaks at the United Nations. Ukraine's president visits Washington. And coming up, I'll have my interview with former Vice President Mike Pence from last weekend's Pray Vote Stand Summit held by the Family Research Council here in Washington, D.C. That and a lot more coming your way here on this edition of the D.C. Debrief. But again, just a quick reminder, and I know I mention this at the start of every podcast every week, uh, but to please let folks know about this podcast. If you want your news of what's happening here in Washington, D.C., without a bunch of opinion, without being told what to think, you just want the information coming to you, all of the big stories that you need to know about, I don't know of any other podcasts that are doing that, friends. This is the place to come for that. And so if you know people who would like the same thing, tell them about the DC Debrief and tell them we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, with that out of the way, let's get to the debrief for this week. House Republican paralysis with a September 30th shutdown just around the corner. It appears Congress is heading for the nation's first shutdown since December 22nd, 2018 through January 25th, 2019, which is the longest shutdown in U.S. history. For the second time this week, a military defense bill was not allowed to come to the floor for a vote after four hardline rebels voted against allowing debate on it. This is another embarrassing setback for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And not only that, after saying that the House would stay in session to potentially cast votes this weekend, they've decided to head home and will resume negotiations on Monday. Now, this is all happening because the House GOP caucus is paralyzed by intra-party disagreements over how much spending to cut, whether to include funding for Ukraine and some other issues on which those far-right holdouts are making their demands heard. Moderate and hardline House Republicans, not only can they not agree on what a short-term continuing resolution would look like, some of those conservatives furthest to the right don't want a CR of any kind whatsoever. And McCarthy's frustration after House Republicans once again failed to pass this basic procedural rule that almost always gets passed by the majority— just to have a debate on these different issues. After the after it failed once again, this procedural rule to fund the Pentagon failed. McCarthy's frustration was palpable. I don't understand why anybody votes against bringing the idea and having the debate. And then you got all the amendments if you don't like the bill. This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. It, it doesn't work. Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries says the GOP is now run by the far right flank. House Republicans continue to be held captive by the most extreme elements of their conference, and it's hurting the American people. But listen, Republicans don't need Democrats to dunk on them. They've pretty much spent this entire week dunking on each other. Here's Republican Mike Lawler. This is not uh, conservative Republicanism. This is stupidity. Uh, The idea that we're going to shut the government down Uh, When we don't control the Senate, we don't control the White House. These people can't define a win. They don't know how to take yes for an answer. Uh, It's a clown show. You keep running lunatics, you're going to be in this position. 
Here's another Republican, Tony Gonzalez. He's a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. President Biden is responsible for this failure. The Senate is responsible for this failure. And House Republicans are responsible for this failure if the government shuts down. I left a meeting where we were talking about top line numbers that we know for sure the Senate isn't going to pass or, or consider at all. And you've got Freedom Caucus member Chip Roy. With all due respect to my conservative colleagues, let them go explain why they don't support that. It's completely inexplicable. Um, and uh, I think it's indefensible. So, you know, here we said. So now we got to go try to figure out how to move the ball forward. But we had agreement in good faith with people across the conference. If you, so here's what's here is what's happening. And specifically with this second bill, um, this the second procedural vote on the Pentagon funding measure. Five GOP members voted against the rule on Thursday. Republican representatives Dan Bishop, Ralph Norman, Andy Biggs, Matt Rosendale, and Ken Buck all joined Democrats in voting against the rule for the appropriations bill. Now, Democrats, whatever, every minority party always votes against the rules for the debate. But it's just assumed that the majority is going to carry all of those votes. Now, these five Republican members of Congress say that they will not allow any of the 12 appropriations bills to come to the floor unless their demands for spending cuts in all 12 of those bills are met. And they have to be at the levels they say Speaker McCarthy agreed to at the beginning of the year as a condition for them to drop their opposition to him to serve as Speaker. They say McCarthy has not shown them whether or not their spending cuts will be agreed to and that they refuse to move forward on anything until they see top-line numbers. Now, the big question facing McCarthy is whether or not he's annoyed enough by these members and whether he thinks it's worth it for him to keep his speakership, whether he would turn to Democrats for votes on getting these appropriations rules through. If he does that, it likely ends his speakership or at the very least puts it in great peril, according to staunch McCarthy critic Matt Gates. If Speaker McCarthy relies on Democrats to pass a continuing resolution, uh, I would call the Capitol moving truck to his office pretty soon because my expectation would be he'd be out of the Speaker's office quite promptly. And it should be noted here that whatever bill passes the House, the, these these bills that with these disagreements among Republicans, even if they manage to pass something out of the House at this point, it will be done without Democratic input, most likely. And then they will be, it will be summarily dismissed by the Democratic-controlled Senate, which is one of the things that uh, uh, you heard Republican Tony Gonzalez saying. Like, we're, we're talking about all of these numbers that don't have a chance of passing anything in the Senate or being signed by the Democratic president. So we're he's saying, essentially saying that Republicans are spinning their tires here, even if they manage to get something agreed to by the by the GOP House caucus. And it should be so without Democratic without Democrats in the Senate being on board, a government shutdown looks almost like a certainty at this point. I mentioned the last government shutdown occurred over the Christmas holiday in 2018. It lasted 35 days. So what happens if the government shuts down? And this is one of the reasons why we do this podcast is to tell us why this affects you. All federal agencies except those that are considered essential, which includes the U.S. Postal Service, Medicare, and Social Security, they are not deemed as being essential. Those federal agencies will stop work. So no, no mail, no Medicare, no Social Security services. You will see furloughs for federal employees. You'll see delayed government food assistance benefits, and you'll also see national parks closed. Senators like Republican John Cornyn urging his House colleagues to do everything they can to avoid a shutdown, noting that government shutdowns have historically hurt Republicans more than Democrats. 
and it creates a lot of collateral damage and a lot of collateral expense. It doesn't actually save money. It actually costs more money because of the disruption. And shutdowns harm innocent people and create needless uncertainty for our economy. So if the House doesn't come back in until Monday, that will leave them about five or six days to get something through both the House and the Senate and something signed by President Biden. And it would be a short-term bill that would only kick the can down the road for another month. So uh, a dysfunctional Congress, and specifically right now, what many analysts say is a dysfunctional what Republicans themselves are saying is a dysfunctional, well, don't take my word for it. Listen to Republican Congressman Tim Burchett. We're dysfunctional. It's just that simple. That simple. We are that we are so dysfunctional. And there you go. Congressman Burchett calling his own party in the House of Representatives dysfunctional at the moment. Biden at the U.N. This week, world leaders, including President Biden, gathered at the United Nations General Assembly in New York with much of the focus on Ukraine. As the president called for continued support for the embattled nation, some in Congress are looking for the U.S. to ramp down or stop using tax dollars to help end Russian aggression. CBN National Security Correspondent Caitlin Burke has more. The ongoing war in Ukraine took center stage as the main foreign policy issue the president addressed. Russia believes that the world will grow weary and allow it to brutalize Ukraine without consequence. But I ask you this, if we abandon the core principles of the United States to appease an aggressor, can any member state in this body feel confident that they are protected? Biden reiterated continued U.S. military and financial aid for Ukraine and called on other world leaders to ramp up their support. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky also making an appeal. And the goal of the present war against Ukraine is to turn our lands, our people, our lives, our resources into a weapon against you, against the international rules-based order. While the Biden administration's commitment to Ukraine remains steadfast, a recent CNN poll reports 51 percent of Americans surveyed believe the U.S. has done enough to help Ukraine in the fight against Russia, compared to 48 percent who want America to do more. Zelensky visits Capitol Hill in the White House this week as the GOP wrestles over a new budget bill, including another $24 billion for Ukraine. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is making no promises. Is Zelensky elected to Congress? Is he our president? I don't think I have to commit anything. I have questions for him. Where's the accountability and the money we already spent? What is the plan for victory? Foreign policy expert and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, Michael O'Hanlon, tells CBN News that if the war continues for another year, debate will likely be about cutting back aid rather than cutting it off completely. I think that that might allow for a substantially reduced amount of American assistance by at least half, maybe three-fourths, and still allow Ukraine to hold on to the five-sixths of its territory that it has today and protect its government, its capital, the majority of its people, most of its economy. For now, Ukraine deserves a fuller, fairer chance to take back its land. Iran sanctions and detainees released. Five Americans are now free following a controversial prisoner release deal with Iran this week. And while it's certainly good news that these wrongfully detained people are now free, 
Some are questioning the methods for freeing them. CBN News correspondent Hillary Powell with more on that. Images show three freed Americans breathing free air for the first time in years. A Qatari government jet provided them safe flight to Doha, Qatar, after enduring what the U.S. called wrongful detainment in Iran. Under a carefully choreographed deal, a total of five Americans with dual nationality are headed home in exchange for unfreezing $6 billion in Iranian funds. Two other Americans who had been blocked from leaving the country are also on their way home. It means that husbands and wives, fathers and children, grandparents can hug each other again, can see each other again can be with each other again. So it's a day that I'm grateful for. Some Republicans and other international leaders are blasting the deal, calling it a ransom, saying it will likely encourage future hostage taking. The deal also drew criticism from Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Mark Warner. I want to hear what kind of constraints are being put on in this exchange in terms of what has been reported of the $6 billion. Blinken says the funds, Iranian oil revenue once frozen in South Korea, can only be used for humanitarian purposes. We have absolute oversight of how, they, how they're used, and they can only be used for humanitarian purposes. And we have uh, absolute confidence in the process. Despite the deal, Blinken is quick to say the U.S. will continue to hold Iran accountable. Tensions are almost certain to remain high between the U.S. and Iran, which are locked in various disputes, including over Tehran's nuclear program. Blinken took note of retired FBI agent Bob Levinson, abducted in Iran 16 years ago and still unaccounted for. The State Department is reiterating a clear warning to U.S. citizens to avoid traveling to Iran. In a statement, the department warns there is no way to guarantee a similar result for other Americans who decide to travel to the country. Mr. Zelensky goes to Washington after speaking at the U.N. earlier in the week. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was in the nation's capital on Thursday, meeting with members of Congress and with President Biden at the White House. This as a battle is brewing by an increasing number of Republicans in Congress to slow down or stop funding for Ukraine. CBN News congressional correspondent Matt Galka takes us through Zelensky's trip to Washington. Zelensky arrived at the Capitol to meet with a bipartisan group of lawmakers behind closed doors. He faces some skeptics on the Hill as the debate over whether or not to continue providing aid rages on in Congress. Zelensky was flanked by Senate Democrat leader Chuck Schumer and Republican leader Mitch McConnell after meeting with senators. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said there was no joint address of Congress because of timing issues. McCarthy and other members of the House had questions for the Ukrainian president before meeting with him privately. What is the plan for victory? Where are we currently on the field? The accountability issues that a lot of members have questions. Just walk through that. Republican support for sending more aid to Ukraine has waned recently, with 29 House and Senate Republicans vowing to oppose the new aid request from the White House. House Foreign Affairs Chairman Mike McCall was confident questions were answered and the funding would be there for Ukraine following the meeting. They need it. Um, and they're going to get it. I, I, I said, you know, the majority of the majority support this. I know there's some dissension on both sides, but I said a war of attrition is not going to win this. And that's what Putin wants, because he wants to break the will of the American people and the Europeans. We can't afford a war of attrition. We need a plan for victory, and we need to do it soon. 
Zelensky visited the Pentagon and then the White House. President Biden reiterated support for Ukraine during a speech at the U.N. General Assembly earlier in the week. And when lawmakers talk about accountability, what they're talking about is oversight into how that money is being spent. Just recently, some Ukrainian leadership was dismissed after allegations of corruption. And meanwhile, the United States has already contributed more than $100 billion of aid to Ukraine. Military holds latest. The Senate this week confirmed the nation's next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General C.Q. Brown, to replace the outgoing Mark Milley. Brown cleared the Senate by an 83-11 to 11 vote. And the vote comes as Democrats are trying to maneuver around the military holds placed on promotions and nominations by Republican Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, who is demanding that the Pentagon end the practice of paying for service members seeking abortions to travel out of state. The Senate also confirmed General Randy George to be the Army Chief of Staff and General Eric Smith as Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps. But hundreds of other nominations remain on hold. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said continuing to put a hold on the mass nomination process is untenable. Polls show that the American people strongly oppose what Senator Tuberville is doing. And a recent poll showed that even 58% of Alabama voters believe Senator Tuberville should allow the promotions to go forward. Simply put, besides the most extreme elements of the Republican Party, no one thinks this is a good idea. Senator Tuberville says the issue isn't a lack of leadership in the military, it's a lack of leadership in the Senate. Despite the lack of leadership, senators are perfectly capable of voting. Voting is our job. That's why we were sent here. So to be clear, my hold is still in place. The hold will remain in place as long as the Pentagon's illegal abortion policy remains in place. If the Pentagon lifts the policy, then I will lift my hold. It's easy as that. That's been my position from the very beginning. I'm not afraid to vote on these nominees or on all of these nominees. I came here to this chamber to vote, and I reserve the right to seek another closer position on the nominees in the future. Tuberville has not objected to bringing up these nominations or any nominations one at a time. And in this case, Schumer is admitting that these particular nominations needed to be done. But it is impossible for the Senate to do long confirmation proceedings for the remaining 300 plus military promotions. Brown, we'll just get into the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a little bit more about him. Uh, Brown is a career fighter pilot, was the Air Force's first black commander of the Pacific Air Forces, and most recently was its first black chief of staff, making him the first African-American to lead any of the military branches. His confirmation will also make it the first time that the Pentagon's two top posts are held by African-Americans, with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin as the top leader on the civilian side. Fed interest rates. The Federal Reserve this week decided to leave a key interest rate unchanged despite some backsliding over the last two months in inflation numbers. Consumer inflation dropped from a year-over-year peak of 9.1% in June of 2022 to 3.7%. Fed Chair Jerome Powell did not rule out raising rates again this year at some point and said he realizes keeping rates high could have some negative consequences. We remain committed to bringing inflation back down to our 2% goal and to keeping longer-term inflation expectations well anchored. Reducing inflation is likely to require a period of below-trend growth and some softening of labor market conditions. 
Now, keep in mind when Powell says softening of labor market conditions, that's really Federal Reserve policy ease for saying the job market is going to be hurt. Unemployment is likely to increase as they continue to dry and to try and slow down the economy. The Fed's latest decision left its benchmark rate at about 5.4%. They've raised it 11 times since March of 2022, and those hikes have significantly raised the costs of consumer and business loans. Um, the Fed's decisions on Wednesday underscored that even as its policymakers approach a peak in their benchmark rate. They're not likely to to raise it a whole lot more. They intend to keep it at or near its high for a prolonged period, meaning we're likely to see something around 5.4%, 5 5.45%, 5 5.5% for quite a little while. Besides forecasting another hike by the end of the year, the officials now envision keeping those rates high deep into next year. They expect to cut interest rates just twice next year, fewer than the four rate cuts they had forecast in June. What I'm hearing, three hearings in particular this week that I wanted to bring to your attention. First, uh, a big hearing with Attorney General Merrick Garland at a contentious House hearing this week. Republicans hammered away at Garland for what they say is his lack of oversight into the Hunter Biden investigation, accusing him of playing politics and protecting the president and his son. Garland defended the job he's done, saying he has kept his promise to make the Justice Department an independent and nonpartisan institution. As the president himself has said, and I reaffirm today, I am not the president's lawyer. I will add, I am not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. Our job is to follow the facts and the law, that is what we do. Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson disagrees, accusing Garland of slow walking and interfering with the investigation into Hunter Biden. Has anyone from the White House provided direction at any time to you personally or to any senior officials at the DOJ regarding how the Hunter Biden investigation was to be carried out? No. Have you had personal contact with anyone at FBI headquarters about the Hunter Biden investigation? I don't, I don't recollect the answer to that question, but the FBI works for the Justice Department. It's, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You don't, recollect, you don't recollect whether you've talked with anybody at FBI headquarters about an investigation of the president's son? I, I don't believe that I did. I promised the Senate when I came um, before it for confirmation that I would leave Mr. Weiss in place and that I would not interfere with his investigation. Democrats largely stood up for Garland, ranking member Jerry Nadler chief among them. There have been accusations that the handling of the Hunter Biden matter is an example of a two-tiered system of justice. What's your response to that allegation? The Justice Department treats everyone alike, regardless of party, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of wealth. Everyone is treated alike. I understand that uh, people may not understand why particular investigations are conducted in particular ways until all the facts come out. That's what we have a court for, and all of the explanations uh, will come out with respect to Mr. Weiss, for example. David Weiss has been overseeing the Hunter Biden investigation since 2018, appointed during the Trump administration. Weiss recently indicted Biden on gun charges. Biden is pleading not guilty. Federal Emergency Management Agency Administrator Deanne Criswell warned lawmakers the agency would have difficulties responding to any natural disaster if there is a government shutdown. 
And of course, we all know about that September 30th deadline. The warning came as she testified on disaster preparedness before the House Transportation and Infrastructure Subcommittee on Emergency Management. Isn't that a mouthful? Uh, Representative uh, Republican Chairman uh, Scott Perry accused accused FEMA of prioritizing net zero policies that exacerbate fire conditions after the wildfires in Maui. Chairman, we're seeing an increase in the number of wildfires across the U.S. and I don't know that that's true, but regardless, what I'm talking about is what's causing them. Policies are causing the wildfires. People are losing their lives and their property. Should the rest of America be paying for that when that can all be avoided? That is the question. FEMA's role should always be to go in and support the response and recovery of communities that are impacted by any type of severe weather event. Regardless of poor management decisions that are life-threatening. We also have several programs that help communities invest in mitigation to reduce the impact. That is a focus that we need to continue to work on together. Are you doing anything to reduce the impact of these net zero policies? To reduce the impact of severe weather events. No, net zero policies. That's my question. Are you doing anything to mitigate them so these people's lives and homes can be saved? Are you doing anything in that arena? Our focus, Chairman, is to work with communities to reduce the impact of whatever the risk is that they're Okay, so the answer would be no. I thank the gentlelady and I yield. Chriswell also talked about depleting funding levels for the Disaster Relief Fund, climate change and mitigation, and the high costs for flood insurance, as well as FEMA's role in border security. Finally, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg testified before a House committee this week, and he was challenged by Republicans on a number of fronts. Republican Doug LaMalfa and Buttigieg butted heads over government subsidies for electric vehicles, as well as the existence of climate change. There are three things that we think are not guaranteed. Will it happen quickly enough to materially help with climate change? Will it happen on equitable terms that are available to people who aren't wealthy and okay, might not be able to? So if I could just please finish my answer. Let's drill on the climate change. Just finish the third. third. Uh, Will it be made on, on American soil It's about CO2, isn't it? How's what that? Percent, what percent of the atmosphere is CO2 that we're chasing here? I'm sorry? What percent of the atmosphere is CO2 that we're chasing here? Because you're talking about climate change. I, I don't know the percentage of atmospheric gases. You don't know the percent of the atmosphere. What I can tell you is that climate change is real. We got to do something about it. Yeah, this one's and called been, autumn, sir. So, I'm sorry, this one's called autumn right now. So, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't make out what you said, sir. This climate change right now is called autumn. Yes. Yeah, that's that's the seasons changing, which mm-hmm. respectively is not the same thing as the climate changing. Buttigieg was also challenged by Republican Congressman Eric Burleson over reported private flights he's taken as transportation secretary. Um, how often do you take private flights? Um, so I assume by private flights, you mean the use of government aircraft assigned to my agency. And uh, I knew this might come up, so I brought some numbers. Uh, since getting this job, I have taken 600, these are estimates, give or take a couple, uh, but I've taken 638 flights. And, and uh, any of those commercial? Say, say about any that? Any of those commercial? Uh, 607 of them were commercial. 10 of them were on military aircraft, such as Air Force One and 21 of them were on FAA aircraft, representing about 3% of the flights. Buttigieg challenged Republicans on the committee that subsidies for transportation priorities are good for the country's long-term economic and environmental health, while some on the GOP side believe the government is spending taxpayer dollars on frivolous policies like EVs that only benefit the wealthiest Americans or are for green initiatives to combat climate change. 
Biden Gun Prevention Office. President Joe Biden is creating the first ever federal office of gun violence prevention. The office will coordinate efforts across federal agencies and offer help and guidance to states that are struggling with increasing gun violence. And they say they will take the lead on implementation of the bipartisan gun legislation signed into law last year. The office fulfills a key demand that gun safety activists have made as uh, as they were endorsing Biden for president here in 2024. It's also an effort by the White House to keep the issue on the front burner. It's become a campaign issue for the president. Uh, Republican support for gun restrictions is down just one year after Congress passed what to this point is the most comprehensive firearms control legislation in decades. According to a recent poll by the Associated Press, NORC's Center for Public Affairs Research, most Democrats, 92%, want gun laws made stronger. However, Republicans, that Republican uh, support for more expansive legislation has dropped from 49% last summer, nearly half, to 32%. About a third, so from a half to a third, and independent support has also declined just a bit from 72% to 61%. However, both sides do believe it is important to reduce mass shootings. It's just there are very different ideas on how to go about doing that, and Republicans are lining up against, or at least very skeptical, of this new Office of Gun Violence Prevention that the White House will oversee. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for our debrief. And now, as promised, let's take our deep dive. For this week. Last weekend, I wanted to get a sense of how Christians and evangelicals are feeling about the presidential race and the major topics facing the country. So I had the chance to chat with former Vice President Mike Pence about a range of issues, and here's what he had to say after his speech on Friday afternoon at the FRC's Pray Vote Stand Summit. Mr. Vice President, thank you so much for taking some more time with us today. You bet, John. Good to see you. You today announced a, a new initiative to strengthen the American families. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your plan is? John, I'm running for president because I think this country is in a lot of trouble. And that's especially true of the American family. The reality is that traditional two-parent families are feeling the weight of the failed policies of the Biden administration, but uh, they've also endured kind of the steady assault on our values, on our faith, on our liberties. And uh, I, I wanted to come here today to this national gathering and really unveil a plan to strengthen American families. I mean, I really believe that strong families make strong communities, a strong communities makes a strong nations. And, uh, and so strengthening the American family, I, I think is at the heart of our American renewal. And it's a, we have a four-part plan, which first begins with, with uh, combating the runaway inflation that's waging war on American families' budgets, making changes in the tax code that'll make it more possible for more American families to live on one income. And I also want to bring about changes so that any American family that's willing to adopt a child can do so at virtually no cost to them. I think if you're going to be pro-life, you have to be pro-adoption. Uh, we're going to stand up to the radical left and their transgender ideology that's taken hold in our schools. Uh, and uh, and uh, I'm going to direct uh, any administration that I lead uh, to deny all federal funding to any hospital or health care provider that engages in chemical or surgical transgender treatments to stand up for our kids. We've got to protect our kids. Thirdly, we're going to protect uh, parents' rights. We've seen parents' rights come under assault. I'm going to shut down the Federal Department of Education 
transfer all of those dollars back to the states so long as they use them to expand educational choice opportunities. And as people know for all of my public life, I'll be a champion for the right to life in the Oval Office. And not just advocating as some of my competitors are to, to promote the cause of life at the state level alone. I'll, I'll be championing the cause of life, calling for a nationwide standard to end abortion at the point that unborn children can feel pain. I think, I think we, we need a minimum national standard to protect unborn children in places like California and Illinois and New York and other liberal states around the country and even while we work to restore the sanctity of life in its strongest form in every state in the country. So that's our, that's our plan. I wanted to come here to, the, uh, to the, uh, uh, this, this important gathering uh, of faithful Americans to unveil a plan to really restore the American family. And you did it here in front of one of the largest evangelical gatherings in Washington, D.C. every year. This is a message that should be received warmly here by, by uh, your fellow evangelicals, fellow Christians. And I guess my question is, it's, it's, you have been lagging a little bit behind in the evangelical vote. How do you, how do you hope to, to rally these folks to, to your side and, and for you to convince them that you are the candidate that champions, champions their causes? Well, John, one of the things I've learned since I've left the White House as vice president is I, I'm well known, but I'm not known well. Most people know me as that loyal vice president standing alongside President Trump until the day came. My oath to the Constitution required me to do otherwise. But I was a governor of a state that advanced pro-life legislation. I, I was a, a leader in the Congress that stood for traditional values. Uh, and uh, I think as more people get to know me, they, they'll, they'll see that we're going to be ready to lead on day one to, to bring this country back to the values and the ideals that have always made us strong and, and true and prosperous and free. And, uh, uh, and so I, I think it's early yet uh, in the primary. The first caucus won't be for another four months, right. but we're going to continue to take our story, introduce ourselves to people around the country. And I'm running because uh, I believe we need new leadership in the White House, but I also think we need new leadership in the Republican Party, leadership that will ensure that we not only win the White House, uh, but that we grow that majority in the House, that we elect a majority in the Senate, we elect conservatives across America. This country's in a lot of trouble, uh, and I think different times call for different leaders, and uh, I'm stepping forward, and we're going to continue to offer our our experience as the most qualified, the most consistent, the most tested conservative in this race. You earlier, I think it was last week, talked about this, maybe this divide that's growing in the Republican Party between a conservative Reagan-style Republicanism that existed even as soon as 15, 20 years ago, and now a more populist brand of Republicanism. Can you explain a little bit more about where that divide is, how that divide is growing and how you can bridge the gap? Well, John, there's already a party that believes in appeasement on the world stage. There's already a party that wants to ignore our national debt. There's already a party that wants to marginalize the right to life. I'm running for president because I believe in a strong defense and American leadership in the world. I'm willing to take on the national debt and bring fiscal discipline and reform back to our national government. And I'll stand without apology as president uh, for the right to life and not seek to relegate it to the states. What, what people are learning more and more every day is that there, is a, uh, there are a number of candidates in this race and there's a movement within our party that would really walk away from those timeless conservative principles that have literally defined my career and frankly they've defined our movement over the last 50 years. But I still believe 
the majority of Republicans and the majority of Americans know that that common sense conservative agenda of less government, less taxes, a strong military, and a commitment to traditional moral values is the way toward renewing our country uh, and for the betterment of everyone uh, in our nation. So I'm going to stand on that principle. We'll have that debate, and I like our chances. And I know one of the things that you've also talked about as you've been running for president is your record serving as President Trump's vice president. And President Trump ran in 2016. I would, would you agree as, as on a populist agenda? So how, what has changed since the end of the, the Trump presidency uh, to now where you're calling more for a conservative Reagan-esque conservatism as opposed to the populism that President Trump displayed during his presidency? Well, John, when, when Donald Trump ran in 2016, he promised to govern as a conservative, and we did. We appointed conservatives to our course that sent Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history. We built up our military and were willing to take strong steps on the world stage to stand with our allies and stand up to our enemies. And we promoted policies that created a growing economy. But what the American people deserve to know is Donald Trump makes no such promise today, um, that his policy on on the national debt is identical to Joe Biden's. He won't even talk about reforming these entitlements that really threaten the vitality of our economy going forward. He's backing away from American leadership in the world. And like many others in this campaign, he wants to relegate the issue of abortion to the states and has even blamed election losses in 2022 on overturning Roe versus Wade. So I, I, think, I think things have changed. Uh, we governed as conservatives. He ran on a conservative platform. Uh, but now I think I am the most qualified, the most tested, and the most consistent conservative in this race. And as time goes on, the support that we're continuing to see grow in the early states and in states around the country is a reflection that this is still a conservative party. And, it's, uh, and I think it's still a nation that embraces those timeless American ideals. One of the key moments in the first debate was when you had an interaction with Vivek Ramaswamy in which you said, we don't need a rookie to, to get the job here. What it just what are your what is your sense of his campaign so far? I think this country's in a lot of trouble. Joe Biden has weakened America at home and abroad. That disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan has emboldened the enemies of freedom around the world. We have a national debt the size of our nation's economy. The average American household owes a hundred thousand dollars of that national debt. And we have an opportunity to advance the cause of life. So this is no time for on the job training. We, we don't need a president who's too old, and we don't need a president who's too young. I mean, the reason I'm running is because after a lot of prayer and a lot of reflection, we felt called to run, because I truly believe with all humility that I'm, I'm the most qualified, the most experienced, the most tested, and the most proven conservative in this race. And it's that level of experience and that tested leadership that I believe we'll need to turn this country around. And if given the opportunity to be president of the United States, I. I promise you, we're going to know on day one what to do and who to do it with, and we'll turn this country around. Mr. Vice President, thank you so much for your time and for speaking with us again. We really appreciate it. Thank you, John. We appreciate you. I also spoke with FRC President Tony Perkins and asked him about his gathering of Christian voters and what he was seeing from those in attendance. Well, it's, it's been interesting. We were waiting to see kind of the response, being that this is the first time we've been back in Washington after the whole COVID deal. Yeah. And, you know, people have responded differently since COVID, but the, the response has been overwhelming. Uh, we've had to bring in extra chairs for people to coming in at the last minute. So uh, really excited, and the lineup has been really good. And one thing I find differently 
people are more in tune with the spiritual side of things. The, 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 the fact that, yes, we deal with politics, but there's a bigger issue here. And I think the moral and spiritual state of our nation is the for, at the forefront of the concerns that we're hearing and seeing. Yeah, and I was noting that I think when you cover something like CPAC, that's political, top to bottom. And there's here, there are a lot of people that we've talked to, really the faith component of this has been for, has been foremost. And I think that's, like you're saying, that's, that's most important to you. But now it's happening in an election season, so these two things are mixed. So how do you, how do you approach politics from a, from a faith perspective at an event like this? Well, it's really what this is focused on is what we call the, the sage cons, a term that George Barna uh, coined a, a few years back, spiritually active, governance-engaged conservatives. I know it's a little clunky, but it, it, it's really the core of the evangelicals. They're, they're involved not because they like politics, but because their faith compels them. That's why I'm here. I never really wanted politics, uh, but because of my faith in the need I stepped into this arena, and that's what you see here. These are people who are here not because they want to come to a political conference, but because they want to know how they can live out their faith in such a way in this arena to, to impact it and to change the world around them. One of the other things we've heard from people uh, attending is that unity. They want unity. They want unity in the body, and they want unity um, in the country as a whole. And I know certainly in the Republican Party there's been kind of a split recently between maybe some of the more conservative, Reagan-esque ways of looking at conservatism and the more populist ways of looking at conservatism. You know, I'm not so much sure if it's the unity as it is community. I think coming back from COVID that... You know, we've, we've been kind of separated, and, and the legacy media is no longer covering these issues from a faith standpoint. That's why we appreciate CBN and the fact that we cover these issues that are faith-filled. So I think people are looking for community. Um, that said, I mean, I, I do think you see unity among those who understand truth and where we are, and I don't, but I don't think and this is where I, th I, this is coming to the forefront. People aren't willing to compromise truth to get to unity. They want unity around truth. And I'll tell you what was just as illuminating was I chatted with a number of the attendees who were there. Some folks had very specific agendas that they were walking into that summit with and that they wanted to spread awareness about uh, immigration, health care funding for Ukraine, but most talked about simply wanting their party and evangelicals as a whole to be unified moving forward. So here's a little bit of that, a little compilation uh, of some of the uh, folks that I, sp I spoke to at the summit last Friday. We can pray, and that's important, um, and we can vote, and that's really important. You know, there's too many, too many of us, Christians, conservatives, right wing, whatever you want to call it, stay home and say, well, I can't do anything. <clears throat> but I think that's really important. But the standing, being firm, talking to your neighbors, talking to your family, and not saying, oh, we're going to grandma's for Thanksgiving. We can't talk about religion or sex or politics. That's got to stop. I wanted to ask specifically about Vivek Ramaswamy, who has been kind of moving up the polls ever since the, the last debate. What is your, what is your opinion of, of him right now? My only opinion, uh, and this might be extreme, dream is everybody else drop out except for Trump and support Trump. That's, but I'm sorry, I don't know much about him. The last time when Trump was, was elected, there was so much, you know, dissension, uh, you know, never Trumpers, you know, and unless, um, you know, we get past that, you know, in the Republican 
party, you know, unless we get past that and get unity, it, it's all over. I mean, that's just, you know, my opinion. If we have another four years of what we've had, uh, you know, it's all over. I think it's so important to bring a message of unity and make sure there's unity in the body of Christ because I think some people, some folks maybe in the church in general feel that it's either dirty or carnal to be involved in the process and that's actually the opposite of what the Lord charges us to do. We're supposed to be involved. So there's obviously a lot of candidates in this presidential field. A number of them are going to be speaking here tonight. Is there any you're looking most forward to hearing from or this afternoon or this evening or just are you interested in hearing all of them and hear what they have to say? I think I'm interested in hearing from all of them, but obviously some are polling much better than others, so you want to listen to the viable candidates. And I know um, some, some folks are, you know, feeling very polarized by having uh, the different factions. And I think the opposite. I think it's great to hear what the platform is. And the bottom line is the person um, that I want to endorse is someone that's going to endorse a, a biblical, godly worldview 100%. How important is it to you that a... a a candidate's character matches the, um, let's say, the agenda that they that they want to pursue. I think that's a great question, and I think there's again a lot of noise about a lot of things. And the bottom line is the proof is in the pudding. You know, what are the policies that have come out? What is the fruit? So less about you know this one's doing that one or that one's doing this. It's more about what results have come out and how is it going to affect the country? And maybe look backwards that you know there were some great things that happened in the past in the last um, administration. So look forward. One of the guys who has been um, really exciting people is Vivek Ramaswamy, and I'm just kind of curious. I'm getting I, that's one of the people I'm asking everybody about on, on opinion on him and just what they think of him. He's he's a very interesting guy. I would have to say that I'm hesitant. I feel a catch in my spirit. Um, I don't know what motivates him. I've heard what he says motivates him. Um, but I think that following him is also a matter for prayer. Are you leaning in a certain direction towards one person or another, or are you still kind of figuring it out? I don't want to commit to anything because it's too far away, and I believe that God has a person in mind, and I will continue to pray about that. I do like the outsiders, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, President Trump has um, certainly proven himself over four years of what he's able to do and being probably the most champion for pro-life situations. I'm hoping to hear from speakers um, a little more comprehension on the immigrant issue in their countries. We understand that this is an issue in America and we understand the numbers are worrying. But far from that, Latin American people that immigrate are more than numbers. Well, definitely the um, lack of consensus between both parties uh, causes a lot of problems when it comes to what is going to be delivered to each country. So maybe focusing less on the ideological part and actual solutions when it comes to economical status, uh, reliefs, uh, aid, financial aid, that would help a lot more. What I'm hoping to hear is that we no longer support uh, Zelensky in Ukraine. I think that Donald Trump, it, I don't think this would have happened. I think that we should be um, not supporting anybody in that war and that it should end. We should jump in now where we have a chance to negotiate a settlement, a peace settlement. I think we can do it. They don't want to. The United States doesn't want to. Donald Trump would do it.
So is Donald Trump, have you made up your mind Donald Trump is your guy, or are there other candidates that you're still considering? No, Donald Trump, I think, is uh, sent from heaven. So it's interesting that it's a pray, vote, stand summit, because I literally think he was sent from heaven, and it's our last chance to save the United States. I, I think one of my biggest uh, challenges, I, I think, of this week, really, is uh, who people need to decide, are they American or are they not? And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean you have to be from America, but uh, really, do you support and defend the Constitution of the United States? It's a yes or no question. I am a nurse in a major trauma center in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm more concerned about the, the values that my children are going to grow up in and uh, what is being purported to our children today. Some of this stuff is, um, and we're allowing them to live in a delusion that's not real. And we talk about science, but we're not following science in the medical world. Um, and that, to me, is frightful for what my uh, grandchildren will have to face in the future. Well, the most important thing to me is that we close our border. <laughs> I was glad to hear from the Freedom Caucus, and they were talking about that they are going to require that for any of the debt ceiling, any more discussions about giving finances uh, to the administration. So, And I'm also here learning about election integrity. Um, and I really appreciated the speaker that's here now. I'm trying to think of his name, but he's talking about bringing up the next generation of children. We have a lot of, I pastored, like I said, in the inner city for 19 years, and they're talking about youth pastors that are in charge of training up our children, that only 12% of them have a biblical worldview. That is shocking to me. <laughs> Mainly I, want, I came because I wanted to hear the candidates, uh, see them in person, size up, you know, you size up people in person, better than you can when you hear them on TV. And so I wanted to, uh, I knew that Trump was gonna be here and DeSantis, I didn't know Vivek was gonna be here, so I'm glad about that. And I just wanna hear all of them and hear what they have to say. Hear what their message is and see if I sense, you know, that I believe them or not. But I would love to see a Trump-Kennedy ticket. See, that's why I like Kennedy, because I think the two of them could do a lot since DeSantis has already said he's not willing to do that. And I don't know about Vivek. Maybe he would do it. <laughs> Who knows? Now, they always do a straw poll at the end of these events. And uh, there were 582 votes cast in this straw poll. And former President Donald Trump won it, receiving nearly 64% of the votes cast, about two-thirds. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished second with just over 27% of the vote. Uh, Ron DeSantis won the vice presidential straw poll with 25% of votes cast. Only FRC action members who were present at the event were allowed to vote. And uh, Vice President Pence came in third, but at only 2%, right around the same number as Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Nikki Haley. Uh, so for some interesting numbers there, uh, specifically with Vivek Ramaswamy, who is who is growing, uh, who is really moving up the polls in a lot of the different early voting states. But among evangelicals and the ones that I spoke to, a little wary of Vivek Ramaswamy at the moment, not ready to embrace him and essentially seeing Donald Trump as the outsider that they wanted to cast their vote for as opposed to Ramaswamy. But uh, it was a very interesting day that I spent on Friday at the Pray Vote Stand Summit and wanted to bring you a little bit of that here on the podcast this week. All right, looking ahead, the big item next week is the House Oversight Committee holding their first impeachment inquiry hearing into Joe Biden and their corruption allegations against him with regard to Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. They've been looking to do this for quite a while, and uh, we will now get to see exactly where the House Oversight Committee is going to go as they search for a direct link and evidence 
showing that Joe Biden was involved in shady dealings with his son and foreign actors. Uh, Republicans have said that um, these hearings and this inquiry that they're involved in is a search for information, and we'll see whether or not uh, these hearings turn up any direct correlation between Joe Biden and his son Hunter and his business dealings uh, from back when uh, Joe Biden was vice president in the Barack Obama administration. All right, your closer for today, the Senate dress code has been at the center of a lot of consternation uh, among many senators, most of them on the Republican side. But um, what Chuck Schumer has done here was instruct the chamber's sergeant at arms to no longer enforce what has been an unwritten dress code of business attire. Uh, senators up to this point have been expected to wear suits and ties, and uh, women were expected to wear formal wear that covered their arms. Um, but now Chuck Schumer has told the sergeant at arms to no longer enforce it, uh, that it's going to now be the policy to let senators wear whatever they want to wear on the Senate floor. This has most specifically uh, benefited Pen new Democratic Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, who is known for eschewing suits and wearing warm-up gear, uh, shorts and sweatpants and hoodies uh, around Capitol Hill, and now he'll be allowed to do that. In fact, he was wearing that informal wear as he oversaw a Senate session this week. Now, most Republicans have been objecting to this, but, how's, but Senate Majority Whip Rich, uh, Dick Durbin who's a Democrat, broke with his party to express concerns over this decision to stop enforcing a dress code, and he urged senators to maintain standards on the Senate floor. And perhaps the best argument I've seen for keeping the standards in place is what's to stop someone from wearing something offensive or something inappropriate, maybe a message on a T-shirt, or uh, if, if there is a female senator who wants to show more skin than <laughs> many people uh, in the Senate might be comfortable with. You just you open yourself up to some uh, maybe some points being made by by members of the Senate. Now, of course, the Senate is known uh, as being uh, the straw that cools the drink. Uh, they take them. They really try to see themselves as the uh, upper statesman uh, of Capitol Hill. So it's not terribly likely. But uh, it is uh, something that many Republicans and Senator Dick Durbin, who's a Democrat, have said that they would like to see this policy go back to the way it was. Something to keep an eye on here over the next few months. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. And again, please make sure to tell a friend or a family member about the podcast. And if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, I'd love to know what you think about the show. If you leave me a, leave me a rating and leave a comment, uh, I'll... Uh, take a look and uh, take in, take under advisement uh, what you might have to say. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief. Brief.